The song we sang as we walked around and shook hands and rubbed shoulders reminded me of an experience that uh, I had in South Africa when I was there last year. I'm going to just take a moment to share it. We, uh, on the first Sunday that we were in country, we worshiped at a church where, um, you know, a, a famous pastor in South Africa speaks. And as we're uh, unloading our bus, there on the sidewalk in front of the church is one of these, you know, like tent um, uh, chalkboard signs. And written on it, it says, be salt and light, not salty and lit. Like, <laughs> And I kind of looked at it for a minute. And, and of course, uh, South Africa was originally, a, or not originally, but was a British colony for a season of their history. And, and uh, of course, uh, in, in British slang, salty is someone who's kind of, eh, you know, hard to get along with. And lit is someone who drank a little too much before they came to church. So I get back from this trip, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back in the church office, and, and Pastor Andrea brings her laptop into my office for a conversation, a meeting we're having, and she has a sticker on her laptop that says, be salty and lit. And I, and I said, you know, there was a chalkboard at this church in South Africa, and it said, don't be salty and lit, but, but your sticker has, or your laptop has a sticker that says, be salty and lit. I'm not so sure that I like what you're teaching our teenagers. And she's, she looked at me with this confused look, and I said, what does salty and lit mean to them? And she says, well, it means like, you know, be making a difference and, you know, be tasty. And, and, and lit is what teenagers say, like, you know, when a, when a party was... Uh, off the hook. It was exciting. It was cool. It was like all the people. Am I getting this right, teenagers? No. What does lit mean then? I'm getting it right. Thank you, Grace. I appreciate your honesty. Okay. So, you know what? I don't, I, I don't care if you're salty and lit, however you interpret that, um, but certainly we can be salt and light. And I want to say for my family, a lot of you have been salt and light to us this week. Uh, last week, as I was sharing in the sermon about my only living grandmother, it was about that time that grandma had her last stroke. And on Wednesday morning, she went to be with Jesus. And of course, you've read about it on the prayer chain or on Facebook or in the newspaper or wherever. And many of you have reached out and um, texted, called, emailed, given us cards, uh, letting us know that you were praying for us. Thank you. Um, whether you knew my grandma or not, it means a lot that you would encourage us in that way. Uh, of course, grandma, like I said, had her stroke on Sunday, and, and uh, we were pretty clear from the get-go that that would probably be her last stroke before the Lord took her home. And uh, we didn't expect her to live through the night Sunday night, but she did. And so Monday morning, as I was talking with my mom, she said, um, would you come over today and um, do your pastorally duty? And I said, of course, mom, I'd be happy to come. So uh, Monday night after our family dinner, we headed over to grandma's house, and I don't know what I was expecting, but when we got there, it was packed wall to wall, uh, all kinds of family. My mom had six uh, living siblings, and uh, so they, most of them and, and their kids and even you know, some of their grandkids, my aunts and uncles' grandkids were there, and walked in and had the chance to sit down at grandma's bedside. Of course, she was incoherent, um, but just to have a last few words with grandma, and uh, I looked at my mom then, <laughs> this is real good, someone who's been a pastor for almost 25 years, I said, Mom, you asked me to come over and do my pastoral duties. We don't do like the last rites, so what did you have in mind? Real good, like I ought to know that, right? And uh, I mean, I've done that with some of your family members, I don't know what I was thinking. She says, well, I, I don't know, maybe we could pray? I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I knew that. 
and I kind of looked around the, the living room and the adjacent rooms, and I saw some of my family, and uh, I just had a sense like, I, I know some of these folks aren't following Jesus. I don't, I don't know how it's going to go over when I stand up and say, as the pastor of the family, I'd like for us to pray. Um, but I did. And it was amazing to me the way that the family kind of intuitively took hands and uh, bowed their head. I didn't have to coach them on what to do, even those who don't follow Jesus. And we prayed. You know, life is filled with these kinds of significant moments. These big moments that change the trajectory of our lives. That, that moment Monday night as we knew that grandma would be going home soon, that was a sad moment. But you know what? Our lives are marked, I believe, more often than we realize with moments, be they happy or sad, be they uh, momentous or, or you know, kind of slink by unknown, that are significant moments, big moments. And what I want to suggest today as we look at the text is that if we will spend time in these big moments praying, we give God the opportunity to reveal himself in big ways. If we'll commit ourselves, if we'll make time in the big moments of life to pray, we give God the opportunity to reveal himself in big ways. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 3 today. Luke chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there, this is the story of the baptism of Jesus as told through Luke's uh, research, we would say. Luke wasn't present for this, but uh, we know from Luke's writings that he set out to write an orderly account. And as a doctor, he certainly had the resources to do adequate research to write uh, a very orderly account. So this is how Luke records the baptism of Jesus. I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 3, verse 21. I'm going to read a few verses, then I'm going to skip down to the beginning of chapter 4. So if you'd follow along as I read, please. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, let's push the pause button for just a second. This phrase is significant, and I think too often we just skim right over it. As Jesus was praying. Everything else that we're going to read in a few moments happened when? As Jesus was praying. I don't know about you, but if you're me, you probably read this text, and, and if you're picturing it in your mind, you think Jesus prayed, said amen, and then boom, these things that we're going to read in a minute happened. But Luke says, no, this happened as Jesus was praying. And this is one of the reasons that we have committed on Wednesday nights one class to do nothing for the 6.30 to 7.30 hour, but pray. Because we believe that a work, the work that God wants to do, the most significant works that God does, happens not after people say amen, but while God's people are praying. We're growing as a church in our understanding that uh, prayer isn't some kind of, of, uh, of microwave where you punch a few buttons and say a simple prayer, and a minute or two later, you pull out a steaming bag of Holy Spirit power. Prayer is something that takes time. And it's when we take the time to pray that we experience the power of God in the way 
that he would like for us to have it. So, and as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, which seems like kind of an obscure fact to to put in here, to tag on the end of the story of Jesus' baptism. But Luke does that for a reason, because for the Jews who would read this account, and certainly for the Jews who were present at the baptism of Jesus, it was significant that Jesus was 30. If if you uh, have room in the margin of your Bible, jot down a few references that you can look up later. Genesis 41, 46. Genesis 41, 46. Numbers 4, 3. 2 Samuel 5, 4, Ezekiel 1, 1. If you have a study Bible, those may be in the study notes or in the margins already. I would encourage you to look them up. You'll see that throughout the Old Testament, significant men and women began their most important ministry. Guess what age? 30. Luke is telling us something through the writing of this text, and we're going to see how he does that in other ways too in just a minute. And then in the rest of of, of chapter 3, Luke shares kind of Jesus' family tree, where Jesus came from, because Luke is trying to tell those of us who would read his account of Jesus' life that Jesus was who he claimed to be. This is how he came to be. He was a man, 100% man, and he was also 100% God. But jump down with me now to chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Jesus, Luke writes, full of the Holy Spirit. This is the result of what happened at Jesus' baptism. As he was praying, what happened? The heavens split, the Holy Spirit came down, and God spoke. Luke says a result of that is Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that situation, or or with that capacity, Jesus left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So here we have the same Holy Spirit who um, came down in miraculous form, we would say, and, 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 and filled Jesus with confidence, filled him with boldness, filled him with the certainty of what he had been put on earth to do. The same Holy Spirit who now filled Jesus, led him from a, a, a big moment, a significant moment that would start his ministry into a barren place. Luke continues in verse 2, where for 40 days he was tempted or tested by the devil. This is the, uh, the story of when Jesus was praying at his baptism. And let me just ask, have you ever had an experience where as a result of or while you were praying, something like that happened? I mean, maybe not literally the sky split and a dove came down and God spoke, but have you ever had an experience where it's like, wow, God showed up? I don't know if you have. I don't know if you can remember when it last happened. I can say that I have, but not in a long time. 
And so I wonder as we look at this text, if there there are some things that the Holy Spirit would have us understand so that we can become the kind of people who are willing to pray until something happens, who who are willing to pray knowing this isn't just vending machine time where we ask God for something we need, but where we pray expecting that the Holy Spirit will move and do something in us that we can't predict, that we can't ask for, that we have no idea how to imagine, but that is well within God's ability and I believe even his desire to do. So let's look at the three things that happened as Jesus prayed. First of all, Luke tells us about the vision of the praying son. As Jesus was praying, Luke writes, the sky split, the heavens opened. You know, again, I think Luke is trying to help us understand that this isn't just another big moment in the life of Jesus. It is a big moment, but it's more than that. There's a lot happening here that we miss because we live in 2019 in the United States, and and we don't think like Jewish people do, like the people who would have been gathered and the people who would have read Luke's gospel for the first time. This idea of the heaven opening is an Old Testament theme. We see it time and time again in Old Testament scriptures, where when the, heaven op- the heavens open, whether it's literally or whether the writers use it symbolically, the people of God know that God is preparing to speak to them. This is going to be a moment of divine revelation. Take, for example, Isaiah 64.1, where Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And so Jesus, as he's praying, Luke writes, the, the, the heavens are rent. The heavens are opened. Now, this is a big deal, not just because it's been four centuries since God's people heard God's voice, You see, the prophet Malachi, if you were to turn back a few books to the whatever direction you need to do it in your Bible, I can't, I guess that'd be, you're flipping the pages to the right. Um, You'll go back to the last book in the Old Testament, that's Malachi, who was the last prophet to bring a direct word of the Lord to God's people. It was about 400 years before this happened. There has been nobody to deliver God's word to God's people. They didn't have the privilege of a Sunday morning worship service where they could open the word of God that was pre-printed on paper and, and, and on digital tablets. For 400 years, no one has told God's people what God wants them to hear. Now, we understand that at this time, John the Baptist was the next prophet. He was the prophet who the Old Testament prophesied about, that he would come before the Son of God was revealed. But the contemporaries, John's contemporaries didn't understand that. They didn't know or believe that John was a prophet. And so as Jesus is praying and the heavens open, those who are gathering, they start to like, you know, they like start to drool and their palms start to get sweaty. They know that what's about to go down hasn't happened in over 400 years. And they're ready to hear the voice of God and what he has to say to them. And, and it, wasn't just, it wasn't just the vision of the praying son, the heavens opening that, that happened. You'll see that the next thing, part two, is the visitation of the empowering spirit or the visitation of the Holy Spirit. Luke writes that the Spirit comes down like a dove and rests on Jesus. I think there's several reasons that this happens. First of all, Just to make clear, 
exactly who God was talking to and about. Because you know there was some joker in the crowd who'd be like, yeah, he's talking about me. And I, I think a dove resting on Jesus kind of removes all doubt. Okay, you're not getting that. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Seriously, though, I think that uh, I and Bible scholars think that the dove is a flashback to something significant in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, you'll remember there was a story about an ark. I heard someone say earlier that we're building an ark in the back because it doesn't seem to stop raining. Um, but at the end, when the flooding and rain had stopped, what animal did Moses send? Moses. <laughs> Trick question. Did Noah send out of the ark? He sent a dove. And it becomes throughout the, the history of the people of God a symbol of hope and salvation. And so the, the spirit coming down as a dove, I think, is, is a throwback to remind people that there's hope and, and uh, there's salvation. It's a new day. A new day has come. But maybe most importantly, that dove, if I could say it like this, was a billboard with flashing neon lights saying, this is the promised one. This is the Messiah. Let me read a few verses to you from Isaiah. We're going to put them on the screen behind me. In Isaiah 11, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Isaiah 42.1, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Hold on to that word. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So the dove landing on Jesus, for those who would have understood Old Testament prophecy, would have said, that's him. That's the Messiah. That's what God said would happen. This is him. We should listen. We should pay attention. We should follow him. And I think there's one more thing that's happening here that's not about the crowds. It's not about the people. It's not about us who come after. But it's about the Son. You know, Luke chapter 4, and this is the reason why we read the first two verses of Luke chapter 4. It's pretty honest about how Jesus' ministry began. If you want to say that it started here at his baptism, I would agree. And then step two he goes into the wilderness where for 40 days he squares off against Satan. Toe-to-toe, -to -toe, no food, no water. May the best, well, Satan's not a man, but may the best man win. Now Jesus comes out of that victorious. And what's the next heading in your Bible in chapter 4? Go ahead and look. Mine says Jesus rejected at Nazareth. 
And so step three of Jesus' early ministry is that he goes to his hometown where he grew up. He walks into the synagogue, into the church service on Sunday morning. The pastor or the rabbi says, uh, Jesus, welcome home. Would you like to read the text today? And so Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, and, and we just read the passage that Jesus read from Isaiah 61. He rolls it back up, hands it back to the rabbi, and says, Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, and takes his seat. Now, you'd think the people would be like, wow, the Messiah's from our town. Who knew? But they weren't. They were like, uh, time out. Isn't that Joseph's son? Like, didn't I change his diaper in the synagogue nursery? Isn't this the little rabble rouser who thought he knew more about the text than the rabbi? And it says they became angry and they drove Jesus out of town and they were going to throw him off a cliff to kill him. But somehow Jesus slipped away. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus goes from the high of the heavens opening, the dove coming down and, and God speaking, he goes from this high and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he does battle with Satan for 40 days. What do you think that he kept going back to? What do you think that he reround and replayed in his mind? I would suggest it was the vision of the Holy Spirit coming down and landing on him and then the words that the Father says, which we'll look at in a minute. I would suggest it as the people are saying, he's no Messiah, he's Joseph's son, and are, and are, and are driving him out of town. I would suggest that the words Jesus hears aren't, let's kill this guy, blasphemer, I would guess that what Jesus hears or what Luke describes next, the voice of the approving Father. Notice God says, God the Father says two specific things to God the Son. First of all, he says, you are my Son whom I love. Beloved, I'm 43. I don't know if you think that's young or old. I've accomplished a small amount of some significant things in my life. I have a beautiful wife who strives daily to, to, to be the, the, the image of the godly wife as described in Scripture, just about as good as any woman I've ever seen. I have children who are running hard the race of faith and are doing their best to persevere through the race marked out, the course marked out for them. I've done ministry on more than half of the continents of this earth. I've ministered in the smallest church in our denomination, or one of the smallest churches, and I've ministered in one of the largest churches in our denomination. I'm pretty aware of my weaknesses and pretty confident in my strengths. And I don't say all that to brag, but when my dad looks at me and he says, I love you, son, all of that stuff means nothing compared to what my dad just said. There is something powerful about your father saying, I love you, son. Jesus needed that. Oh, yes, he was God and he would raise the dead. He was man, completely and fully man. 
And he needed to know that his father loved him. You know, truth be told, and my dad would amen this if he were here, just because my dad loves me doesn't mean he's always pleased with me. Which is why I believe God the Father says next to God the Son, with you, I am well pleased. You're doing the right thing. You're ready for this. Let's get to it. I don't know about you, like I said earlier, but it's not very often when I pray that I see this kind of response. And so truth be told, I want to know what Jesus prayed because I want to pray those words. I want to see if I can experience what Jesus experienced. Luke was a doctor, so a little smarter than me and, and, uh, and probably realized that through the ages, that's what we'd try to do, that we would make an idol of the words that Jesus prayed. And so he doesn't tell us here what Jesus prayed. He doesn't record it. He does in other places and at different times, and we'll see that through this series. But on this prayer, Luke only tells us that Jesus was praying. It's curious. It's interesting to, to you know, think about what maybe he was praying on the back of your sermon notes. You'll see the discussion guide for small groups is going to walk you through maybe what Jesus was praying based on scriptures. But for now, I, let's, let's, uh, let's kind of sidestep that and let's apply what happened here. If we can, by the help of the Holy Spirit, let's apply it to our lives. And let's just ask this question. In my big moments, in my significant moments of life, how or what should I be praying? I just want to suggest three things to you. If the Holy Spirit confirms them in your heart, great. And if not, then thank you for listening politely. First of all, I would suggest that God would give you, you would want to pray that God would give you a clear vision of what he has for you to do. Pray in these significant moments that God would give you a clear vision of what he's created you to do. And I would say that includes who you are and how he's made you. You know, this is a theme that runs through the Bible with anyone who did anything significant for God. God gave them a clear view, a picture, a vision, a dream of what they were to do. I mean, think of Isaiah. Isaiah, the, the prophet. We call him the prophet Isaiah, but before he was maybe the prophet Isaiah, he's praying, and in, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he writes of this vision he had where he finds himself in heaven, in the throne room of God, and there's angels singing, and it's this like mind-blowing vision. And at the culmination of the vision, he hears the voice from the throne, God himself say, who shall I send? Who will go? And Isaiah goes, I think he means me. Ezekiel, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, he, he records a, that he had a vision. He was in Babylon. He had been taken into exile. He's by the Kibar River, and he says he has a vision in which he sees God's hand come and rest on him, on Ezekiel. And Ezekiel knows then what he has to do. Jeremiah says that the word of God burns in my bones like a fire. And if I don't get it out, if I don't share it, if I don't tell God's people what God is saying, even though they don't like it, even though they want to criticize it, even though they want to you know, massage it so it doesn't, it's not so hard to hear it. Jeremiah says, if I don't get it out, it's going to incinerate me from the inside out. I have got to do this thing. 
throughout Scripture, God gives a clear vision to people he calls to do things for them, for him. Peter, you, you remember Peter. He's uh, in the book of Acts. He's on ty- uh, Simon the Tanner's rooftop, and he's praying, and he has this vision, and he argues with God in the vision. That's Peter, ever cheeky. And, uh, and at the end of the vision... Peter's ministry trajectory is changed. He understands his ministry in a whole new way. Saul is on his way to kill some Christians, and he has a vision on the, Damas- on the road to Damascus. You, you, you remember this, right? And, and Saul goes from a religious Jewish Pharisee to the apostle Paul. And Ananias has a vision. His vision is uh, uh, go and find this guy, Saul, who just had a vision because um, he's going to become a major player in the kingdom and you need to go and help him with that. And Ananias is going, no way. And God says, no, this is what you're to do. And Paul later is on a missionary journey and, and he's got it planned out. They've got all their maps and they've got it plotted. They know where they're going. And one night Paul lays down to sleep and he, he sees a vision of a man who says, will you please come over here to us and share the gospel? And Paul wakes up and says, um, uh, God's redirected me. Let's change the plans. We're going somewhere else. God constantly gives visions to his people of what he wants them to do. We don't have to guess, folks. And I know these are some big players. I mean, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Peter and and, and Paul and Anna. These are, I get it. But you know what? They weren't big players. When we see Ezekiel in heaven, he's not going to be strutting around. Peter's not Saint Peter, like years of tradition have piled on him. These were ordinary men and women throughout Scripture who are willing to do what God said when he gave him a vision. Ask God in these significant moments, will you give me a clear vision of what it is that you would have me to do? Ask God for the deep confidence that we're doing the right thing. Ask God to make it clear to you so that you're confident that you're doing what he's wired you to do, what he's created you to do in the place that he's planted you, that you're doing what he wants you to do. The transitions in life are the perfect time to be praying this prayer. When I was a junior in high school, actually it was after this summer, the summer after my junior year, I was out at prairie camp, out at teen camp. And I heard, I was certain, I heard the Lord call me into ministry. And I was excited about that. I mean, that was that was a high honor. I'd heard my grandma Smith talk about her dad and mom who were pastors in the Wesleyan church. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. This, I didn't expect this, but this is great. And then somewhere along the line, I decided there was a better way to go about things. And so I was going to go to college the way that I wanted to go to college, which was not as a ministry major. And that year and a half or so between the calling and and when I finally accepted the calling, that was an empty time. It was lonely. Teenagers, it's never too early to ask God, what does he want you to do with your life? You don't have to wait till you're a senior or a junior making college decisions. Start now as a sixth grader, praying that prayer earnestly, God, what would you have me to do? And listen and try things and ask people who know you and love you and that you look up to, does this seem like maybe this is what God could be saying about my future? Every adult in this room would be honored 
to dialogue with you about that. We would be honored to tell you what we see in you. We would be honored to be a sounding board. It's never too early. Try things out. But pray and ask God, what would you have me to do? Adults, it's not just for teenagers. Like we have transitions all the time, right? A new com- we move to a new community. We get a new job. Uh, we find out that we're expecting. Uh, my wife and I are sending our oldest to college in a year. And, and I'm going, oh man, like, you know, it'll be nice to have one less mouth to feed. And maybe I can have an, a study in the basement, like get her stuff out of there. But, you know, truth be told... We're not really praying about that, about God, what would God would have us do when she leaves. There's so many transitions. It's the time to pray, God, give me a clear vision. And if I could, without stepping on your toes, I would suggest that for a lot of us in this room, retirement is another major transition. And have you prayed if you've just entered or if you're approaching your retirement years, have you prayed, God, how would you pour me out in the next 30 years? God, I don't have a boss who demands that I be to work on time and leave on time and so that they can pay me the right amount. God, I'm, I'm a free agent. How do you want to use me? I, I don't like the phrase retire. Uh, I think we should talk about not being retired, but being refired. It's time to get fired up again for the Lord. We can, you can do things now that you couldn't do before. A friend of mine says, I'm not going to retire. He's a pastor. He's approaching retirement age. He says, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to retread. It's time to keep going. You know, there are men and women in our congregation who, since they left the marketplace, have poured themselves out for the Lord. As, as we heard last night at the concert, Ken, uh, there, there, what, what, what was that? Help me out here. We heard at the concert, uh, they'd rather wear out than rust out. rust out. They'd rather wear out than rust out. These transitions are great times to pray. God, give me a vision. Okay, we're going to move a little quicker here. The second thing I would suggest that you would pray is, uh, actually, I think the scripture suggests here is that God would fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit. That God would fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit. It's easy to think in the big times of life, especially when they're the exciting, new things are happening. It's easy to think that we've got all the Holy Spirit that we need, but the story of Jesus's baptism should tell us without a doubt, we are going to need the Holy Spirit more than we could ever realize in the moments that come after the big moments. Every mountain is surrounded by valleys. And so in the significant moments of life, We need to be asking God to fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's not get sideways on our theology here. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And we know that because we say things like we invited Jesus into our heart. Okay, so we already have this sense that that we have a divine member of the Trinity who comes and indwells. We we know from Romans 8 that it's the Spirit, Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And so if at salvation we receive the Holy Spirit, what we want to do is be cautious about this sense that God only gives a portion of himself or or that the Holy Spirit somehow leaks or evaporates from our lives. That's, That's not a scriptural teaching. Now we can, um, I'll use this language, we can turn down or we can mute the Spirit's voice in our life when we're disobedient, when we don't obey God. 
But for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, there's a sense that we have the Holy Spirit already. And yet, we have language in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 5, where the writers say things like, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul's writing to Christians in Ephesians 5.18, and he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, what's that about? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about being filled, I think about a cup and water, and, and like, they're full is full, right? Like, you get to the top and it's no longer full, now it's overflowing. But Paul doesn't say be overflowed by the Holy Spirit. He says be filled by the Holy Spirit. So, so what does that mean? What's the, maybe the better word picture is a boat. Maybe being filled by the Holy Spirit is a positioning yourself, that the Holy Spirit can work in you to the fullest extent that he wants to, that he can give you the, the fullest amount of his power that he would like to for the task at hand. Maybe being filled with the Spirit is about the, the sales of your life and how you as, as, a, as a follower of Jesus Christ position yourself to receive him. So the third thing I would suggest as we wrap up here is that God would make clear to you that you are his child, that he loves you, and that he's pleased with you. Pray and ask God to make clear to you that you're his child. So many of us get sideways on this. We know that God loves the world because like we all have John 3.16 memorized, right? For God so loved the world. That he gave us, yeah, you know the rest, good. The problem is that when we hear, for God so loved the world, if we're willing to accept that God loves us, we accept us as one of the world. And that's true. But ask God to help you understand and know and experience and feel that he loves you. That God loves me, Earl, not as just another face in the world, but as a person he created as a man whose life he's overseen, as, as one who strives and tries to live as though he's my Lord. Ask God to make it real to you that you, as a person, matter to him, that he cares about you, that he loves you, that he knows you so intimately that he has a secret, a secret pet name for you written on his hand. And ask God to affirm his pleasure with you. Is he pleased with you? And I don't go too far as some Christians do and assume that because I profess Jesus, God is automatically pleased with me. Ah, that's, that's risky. I mean, speaking humanly, I love my children. I, 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 they're fantastic. And I tell them that frequently. But when my children are gossiping or when they're infighting or when I've told them to go clean their room and they sit and play on their iPod still and disobey, I don't look at them in that moment and say, I am so pleased with you. If I did that, I would not be loving them, would I? 
A loving father does not allow his children to continue in sin and act as if he's pleased with it. So maybe instead of asking, God, would you tell me you're pleased? Maybe, maybe we pray, God, would you help me to know if you are pleased with me? This is what the psalmist says in, 139, in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and try me. Expose to me my anxious thoughts and help me to see what offensive ways there might be in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In those significant moments, we want to pray and ask God to make it clear to us that he loves us and for us to understand where he is pleased and, and where perhaps he's displeased so that we can continue to come into the lordship of Jesus Christ. Luke tells us a beautiful story of when Jesus is praying and the heavens are open and the Holy Spirit comes down and God speaks. This isn't just a story of the life of Jesus. This is a story of what God longs to do when his children will pray and wait and trust. And so, beloved, can I encourage us, all of us, to be praying like that in the significant moments and to be asking God for a clear vision and for a filling of the Holy Spirit and for a, a reassurance of who we are to God the Father. Will you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this story from Jesus' life, this example that, that even the Son of God, God in the flesh, needed to pray. He needed to be reassured. and He needed to know for sure that he was loved by God. He needed to hear his Father's voice say, I love you. With you, I am well pleased. The Son of God, God in the flesh, needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit for what is coming. And so if he did, Father, we do. And so, Father, as we sang at the beginning of the service, we pray now, would you hear your children praying, Father? Would you help us to linger long enough in prayer that you can accomplish what you need to, that you can say to us what's on your heart, that we can hear what your voice would say? Father, would you give us the patience, the desire, the, the, the ability to clear our schedule so that as we're praying, the Holy Spirit can fill us again and we can have a clear sense of who it is you've called us to be and what you've called us to do. Father, we love you. And we thank you for this opportunity we have to pray and to talk and to listen. In Jesus' name, amen.